This is a recording from the University of Leicester. Julian's had quite a, a checkered career, I think it's fair to say. He's worked in the drugs field as a practitioner, a probation officer, drugs worker, uh, before moving into academia, um, starting off at Liverpool University. And now he's recently moved to New Zealand and is working at Victoria University of Wellington. Um, Julian's going to talk to us this afternoon about the damage caused by drugs or the damage caused by drug policy. So without further ado, I'll hand over to Julian. Okay, a drug-free world, we can do it. This is, uh, this is the, the back cloth to within which we work. And before I carry on, I want you to do a bit of work, really. I'd just like you to quickly, if you've got a bit of paper, uh, I don't need to spend too long, so it's not about getting it right, but just getting your brain in gear and getting you thinking about this whole issue. Can you think of two commonly used drugs and I'll come back to these questions later in the presentation. And what is the maximum penalty for supplying a Class C drug? So we've got Class A, Class B, Class C. C is the, the least harmful out of the three, theoretically. So uh, what is the maximum prison sentence you can get for supplying a Class C drug? And then let, let's compare that then to the maximum sentence for GBH Section 20 unlawful wounding. What is the maximum sentence in the worst case scenario for a section 20 GBH? And then the third one is can you identify the most dangerous drug in terms of harm to self and to others? So if you don't mind just giving, if you're not writing it down, if you don't mind just sort of committing your memory to, uh, to, one of, to identify the two commonly used drugs uh, that you can think of, any two drugs the maximum penalty for Class C, uh, the maximum penalty for GBH, Section 20, and identify the most dangerous drug in terms of harm, self to others. Actually, that might be just interesting. Just quickly shout out, any two, two drugs, people? Cannabis, yeah? Alcohol. Alcohol. Any others? Heroin, Heroin yeah. Uh, have a quick guess at the Class C. 14 years? Maximum? You've got some people who know their stuff here. Yeah, yeah. And how, about, how about the unlawful Section 20 wounding? Seven years, five years. So you, we've got 14 years for supplying benzodiazepines or ketamine uh, or steroids, anabolic steroids. But GBH, the maximum sentence is five years. And how about uh, the most dangerous drug? Well, we'll come to that a bit later. A drug-free world, we can do it. A drug-free world, we can do it. Uh, it's essentially our drug policy is based upon intolerance. We will not tolerate illicit drugs. So it's based upon prohibition. And the 21st century drug policy looks like this. It's basically uh, the armed forces and the police and the customs and excise eliminating illicit drug use from our country. It's interesting, I said our country, so you haven't quite become a Kiwi yet. Uh, so uh, the drug policy that we've got is also based upon, and you see these, uh, these, these two guys here, uh, white middle-aged men signing the, the documents. Uh, it, it, it's based upon a document that was signed in 1961, a very long time ago, the UN Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs. And this is, are the four schedules listed within the UN Convention. I haven't got time to go into them all. But they say under Schedule 4, the most dangerous substance, 
already listed under Schedule 1, but these are drugs which are particularly harmful and they have very limited uh, benefit in terms of medical or therapeutic value. And of course, we're looking at things with very dangerous drugs like cannabis, so cannabis resin and heroin, which have no therapeutic value and are very dangerous. So you may well laugh, because actually, I think if you're suffering from epilepsy or you're suffering from MS or you're suffering from motor neurone disease, you might well want to disagree about the lack of therapeutic value for cannabis. I think if you're in a car crash or whatever, you might want to disagree on the therapeutic value of diamorphine, a brilliant substance that is a fantastic painkiller. So wonderful, uh, wonderful benefits uh, therapeutically. And I don't think we've yet discovered or appreciated the benefits of cannabis therapeutically in terms of, of uh, de dealing with uh, medical issues. And I certainly wouldn't describe uh, either of them as the most dangerous substances, uh, certainly not cannabis. Bewley Taylor and uh, Gelsmer recently in an article uh, went through the single convention and they said that this document that we're looking at that we think is dated in 1961 has actually been developed in the 50s. So we're not even looking at a document from 61 really. It went through three drafts between 1950 and 1958. And this is the document that essentially uh, the, 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 the various countries, I think there's 70 odd uh, who, who signed up to it at the time, Basically what they've done is they've given up their sovereignty in respect of the management of illicit drugs. And so the management of illicit drugs is governed by the UN convention that they've signed and the UK was one of the signatories. And that means that they accept the penal obligations to embark onto a war on drugs. So it's very interesting to actually give up your sovereignty and give up your rights. There's very few things. It might be, say, uh, nuclear power or nuclear uh, testing or something that, that might be one of the things that could embark with a, a desire to have a, a unilateral treaty or whatever but when it comes to whether you can or cannot grow cannabis or whether you can or cannot chew coca leaves it's a rather strange decision to actually uh, sign up to give up those rights the 1998 declaration uh, of the UN said that drugs are a grave threat to health and well-being of all mankind. We're dealing with something incredibly dangerous here, obviously. And uh, I've, put a, I've put a circle around drugs and a question mark because I'd like to suggest as we go along that we're not really sure what we're talking about or maybe they're not sure what they're talking about when they say drugs. And I want to suggest to you this evening that uh, a drug is actually a, a social construct, that a drug isn't a scientific... Uh, you, well, you might want to suggest that it's a psychoactive substance, but then what do, we, what do we refer to as a psychoactive substance? And as I look at, what, at the shock and the horror and the, the hostility towards drugs and the threat that they pose in a number of different quotes here, I'd like you also to think about substituting the words drugs with drug policy because I actually think that a lot of the uh, statements I'm about to read out make more sense if you read them as drug policy poses a grave threat to health and well-being of all mankind, not drugs. 
goes on to say that drugs or drug policy destroys lives and communities and undermines sustainable human development and generates crime. Interesting that, that on that previous one, the UN is saying that drugs generates crime. And I really do think that there's a, it's quite contested that there isn't a clear causal relationship at all between drugs and crime. There will be associations, but they might not be to do with the substance. They might be much more to do with drug policy, as you saw with alcohol prohibition. Uh, in, in the US in the 1920s and 30s. It wasn't alcohol that fueled crime. It was the alcohol prohibition that fueled the crime. So drugs affect all sectors of society in all countries. Uh, drug abuse affects the freedom and development of young people, the world's most valuable asset. Arguably, drug policy is affecting the freedom and development of young people, the world's most valuable asset. And then to bring it from the UN to the UK, and more recently, they were 1998 quotes, the, the journey continues in, in terms of fighting this war on drugs and proclaiming the menace of drugs, as uh, Caroline Flint did in 2005. And she said that uh, drug misuse is ruining individual lives, it's tearing open families, blighting whole communities, the crime driven by abuse, and the profits in the, in the misery and the vicious circle of drugs and crime, again making those associations. But of course, I do challenge what we mean by drugs, and somebody in the audience was saying, well actually, alcohol is a drug, and I think alcohol is a drug, but I don't think Sainsbury's and Marks and Spencer's are profiting in the misery of people. Uh, but, but surely they are if, if drugs cause misery. But, uh, so we have this, this separation. And, and Caroline Flint ended with this great catch-all that drugs are the scourge of the world. And maybe, and I'm, not, and I'm not joking with you to suggest to you that drug policy is the scourge of the world. Uh, when you look at the devastation that's being done globally. And I do think that in decades to come, historians will look back at this era and they will be... Uh, they won't fi they'll find it hard to understand how such an advanced society was engaged in such a, a draconian measure uh, which isn't rational and we'll come to that more as we develop it further. So current drug policy promotes, I would suggest, ignorance, confusion and misinformation. And I suggest to you that what we have is an apartheid and we have an apartheid with, it, with this notion that we've called drugs. And when we talk about drugs, it's those, those substances on the, on the other side of the barrier there. And I looked on, on Google Images for a, an image. I'm afraid I didn't check copyright. So, uh, but, yes, that's it. Uh, and, and it's interesting that the image I got was a, of a really grubby finger. And, you know, it's, uh, and that's, the, that's the notion of the illicit... You know, so it really, it really communicates the underground markets and of those substances that they use. And that's the illegal drugs. And then we have this socially constructed divide and the creation of the other. So the, the people who use illicit drugs are the other. And they do tend to be, by and large, the, over, the under 30s uh, more proportionately, whereas the over 50s tend to be the users of the nice drugs. And uh, here, by the way, you might be confused. These are not legal highs. They are, they are drugs, but you mustn't get confused and think that they're legal highs. They're legal highs in, in many ways, but they are legal and commercially promoted substances, not generally perceived or accepted as drugs. 
So uh, after the event, you know, we might go for a drink or whatever, and that isn't going to have some drugs. That's just going for a drink. And nobody would ever dream of having an event like this and then taking drugs afterwards. But essentially that's what we'll probably be doing, is, is enjoying some drugs afterwards. And, and, and there is a hypocrisy and a duality that doesn't make sense. And I'm not trying to promote illicit drugs, and I've never taken an illicit drug. So I don't come at this from some personal uh, liberal agenda that suits my interests. It's really having worked in the field and looked at the whole issue pragmatically, I, I'm, I'm, I'm dumbfound as to why we are still where we are now. And uh, so, so we've got these legal commercially promoted substances not generally perceived as drugs, but they are embedded in every expression of leisure, pleasure and occasion. Oh, it's your baby, you've just had a baby born. Oh, well, let's go and wet the baby's head or whatever, let's have a drink. Oh, you passed your driving test, let's have a drink. Oh, it's your birthday, have a drink. New Year, have a drink. It's always have a drink, go out and celebrate, go out and have a good time. And what does go out and celebrate, what does go out and have a good time mean? What, what does it mean? It means get drunk. It doesn't mean have a glass. It means get drunk. Go out and have a really good time. What does that mean? Have a really good time. It means, be, it means reach a level where you might be falling over or whatever. Hey, he's had a good time, you know. And, uh, and what, it's, a, it's a fascinating notion that's been embedded. And you could be encouraged to do that by gran or grandma or whatever, or granddad or, you know. They can even send you cards or whatever, telling you to go and have a good time with champagne glasses on. And I'm questioning the notion of the, 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 the cultural accommodation of alcohol and, ask, and asking that we think about that and what does that mean and how can that be so embedded and permeated within an environment where we have such hostility to other substances. So these, these are, are, are drugs, I would suggest, that this is one of the... And you can see how nice they are and how well-packaged and how presentable they are. And we engage in those drugs. And, and this one's associated with a lot of violence, a lot of domestic violence, uh, a, lot, a lot of abuse, a lot of uh, disorderly behaviour. And you will have been in the presence of people who have kicked off on this substance but it doesn't look like that there. And, you know, caffeine, another drug. And you might think caffeine isn't a drug, but recently uh, caffeine will kill you, actually, if you take it in large dosages, uh, as will alcohol. Uh, and alcohol is, you know, a, a nasty drug in that sense. You keep taking it, it will eventually be toxic. It does kill you. Unlike, say, cannabis, which I'm not promoting, I'm looking rationally at the issues here. You can't die from taking too much cannabis. You will die from taking too much alcohol. You will die from taking too much caffeine. And there was a woman in New Zealand recently had an addiction to Coca-Cola, and she died aged 28 or something. You could read about it on the internet. Uh, uh, and that will be caffeine related. So drug policy, I, it's me arguing, that drug policy provides a, a, a protected privileged position for caffeine, tobacco and alcohol as approved and promoted safer non-drugs, don't get mistaken, that are culturally and institutionally embedded as expressions of leisure, pleasure and celebration. Anyone find this offensive? Would you find that offensive if that arrived through your doorstep on your, uh, through the letterbox? doesn't look offensive. I'm sure you don't find it offensive. If it was a needle, would you find it offensive? If it was a spliff or if it, if it was a, if it was a, a mirror with, with lines of coke on, with a, a, you know, a, a rolled up 20, would that seem offensive? I think it probably would seem offensive to most people. But I'm, 
questioning how we can see one substance like this as being permissible and, and acceptable and another substance as being highly offensive. And I think to be intoxicated and off your head off one drug is the same as another drug. And I don't understand what the difference is. But we can chat about that later if you think there is a difference. So these are instruments for celebration at almost every imaginable social event or occasion. Uh, and multinational companies have a free market monopoly protected from the, the, the pressures of illicit drugs, uh, from, certainly from the government, to sell these recreational drugs and make huge profits. Now how about this one? Is that, is that offensive? Or is that a really very clever, smart marketing ploy? And what if it was a big spliff on the back? How would that look? Or what if it was a needle? So, you see, it's okay to see it like this, and it's just Red Bull, but Red Bull is a, is a strong, you know, stimulant drug. It's not as strong as amphetamine or cocaine, but it's in the same league. It's in the same league of, of you know, it's just caffeine. So, so why, why, what's going on here? Uh, interesting on caffeine, by the way, I don't know if you've seen it, but they've introduced a new inhalable caffeine where you suck on a tube. Uh, so they're, they're really trying to sell it like... like trying to engage in the illicit drug market so you can get your caffeine without putting on calories and whatever without having all the milk and you, you just suck it up and you get a hit is it not similar? it seems similar to me so we have this, this drug apartheid and uh, we, we have all these different substances we, have these, we don't really tend to call them drugs we tend to call those medications and then we, we have these other substances which we are yet to call drugs. But I would suggest to you that, that sugar probably ought to be a drug and it will psycho-affect uh, your, your, your sense of being. You feel better once I've had that Mars bar or whatever. I really needed that Mars bar. I just feel a lot better now, whatever. But people are, are, are becoming obese and addicted to these things, whether it be cocoa, uh, whether it be sugar. So these are, the, these are not yet defined as drugs. And these are the legal highs, not to be confused with the nice ones I showed earlier and they're on their way often to being banned but of course banning substances prohibition I think masquerades I would argue it's, it, it appears to be we've done something about it but it's little more as far as I'm concerned than posturing and what happens is once we ban or prohibit, we cause more damage than good. And I'll, I'll look at that a little bit later. And ironically, it's in like uh, George Orwell doublespeak. Once these substances become controlled, then they're actually uncontrolled and underground. So it's a perverse language that we have. We, we turn meow meow into a controlled drug. And now it's underground and we don't know what's in it and we don't know where it is and who's using it. Uh, and where it's being sold or whatever. So, so it's a strange language that we have uh, to have a controlled drug that becomes then uncontrolled. So by criminalising drugs, we create uh, a lot of damage. So people have made the mistake of not choosing the right drugs, alcohol, caffeine and tobacco, and they choose the wrong criminalised drugs. It affects them legally. They will, they will worry about being arrested. They will use their drug in fear, anxiety, risk, and may become paranoid, not necessarily through the drug, but just through the sheer anxiety of having to keep this stuff secret all the time. They'll worry about possession, conviction, a criminal record. And I, I think a criminal record is worse than the threat of the drugs. And, and I've got two sons, 27, 28, uh, and when they were at uni, I was more worried about, you know, if they were into ecstasy, a class A drug, and uh, if they bought, say, six tablets and gave one to their partner or two to their partner or whatever, and they got done for that, 
then the risk to their life, as far as I'm concerned, would have been much greater having a, a, a possess and supply of a Class A drug as a criminal record than the threat to what might have happened if it was properly ecstasy. I know there's a bad batch going around in Liverpool at the minute, but uh, if you know what you're taking, and obviously you don't when it's uh, illegal, so that poses more risks. But I think, I think to have a criminal record, they probably would never, ever be able to see their auntie in, uh, in New York. They'd probably never, ever be able to get residency in New Zealand or whatever and, and live with me, you know, all because they got... Whereas if they took ecstasy, it, it, the risks are, are generally a lot less. Uh, so employment, you know, if, if, you're, if you're in employment and you're a drug user, you will worry in case it becomes public. Uh, you will worry about any testing that might go on. You'll worry in case you gain a drug conviction and might lose your job. And you'll, you'll worry about the risk of redundancy. Travelling, if you're a drug user, it's, uh, and, and if you get found guilty, certainly if you're found guilty of uh, possession of a drug, it will have serious consequences for the whole of your life opportunities in terms of travel, emigration, housing, employment, mortgages, insurance, and indeed relationships, because the present war on drugs would, would mean that there would be a level of distrust uh, placed upon you. So there's, uh, I've missed one out there, I think. Um, yeah, the, well just, just the, the social stigma really and, and the, under, the underworld and the criminal behaviour. So where were we just to get back? So the socially constructed risks caused by criminalisation. So basically if, if, if we all went for a drink later, you would know what you're taking. There wouldn't be some people in the room who would die because there was bleach in the, in the glass of wine that they took because they know what they're taking. So they do have an idea of, of the point number two there about the purity and contamination. None of us expect to buy a glass of red wine or a, or a nice uh, beer or whatever. But also you know about the strength. You know, you're driving and you think, well, I'll just have one glass of beer, it'll be okay. But nobody told you that that glass of beer was 45% alcohol. But you know, it's, you know what the strength is, but you don't if it's illegal. So you have no idea of strength, you have no idea of purity, and you have to buy in the underground, underground so that exposes you to the criminal underworld, and if you're not wanting to get involved in crime. But it also puts you at risk of criminal sanctions as well. And if you did acquire a criminal record, then that would have a major consequence upon you. So you have to use your illicit drug in secret, and using an illicit drug in secret also poses additional risks in terms of location, so that could also place you at risk. Certainly if I enjoy a drink later, you can be sure that the glasses will be clean, you can be sure it will be a nice environment, uh, and, uh, the, and if it did become intoxicated uh, too, too much or whatever, probably somebody would ring an ambulance and stop serving me alcohol. But if you're using under a railway bridge or an embankment, you put yourself more at risk. And if, you're, if you have got an illicit drug problem, you're less likely to talk to people about it. So it means that you're less likely to seek help. So there are a whole range of additional risks, which are not to do with the substance, but to do with criminalisation. So we have that drug apartheid. So I suggest that actually drugs uh, is a socially constructed uh, notion. It, it, drugs is a social construct. And, and what's over on that side isn't drugs. All those things on the right-hand side arguably uh, should be regarded as being drugs. And here we have uh, the president of Bolivia 
uh, at the UN convention complaining that his drug that they, they use regularly in Bolivia, people go around chewing the coca leaf and people in Somalia go around chewing cats or whatever, the UN convention has deemed that they're doing drugs so they, can't, they refuse to sign the UN convention because they want the freedom uh, to be able to continue their practices that they have for hundreds of years. So we have prohibition, but what also is our current drug policy uh, is resulting in racial oppression and it's also resulting in mass incarceration. So there's further harms here. Nixon launched the, the, the drug war in 1972 and uh, you can see there from that point onwards there's been a massive rise in incarceration levels uh, within the US prison population there, a massive rise. So you can see the figure from the arrow there from 72 right to 2010. And here you see the figure from 1980 to 2010 for the drug offences. So the blue is, is 1980 and the, the orange is, uh, is 2010. So you can see the drug offences in state prisons, federal prisons and jails in the US being the main leader of prohibition and the war on drugs and continuing to be. And here you can see in the federal prisons in the US, over 50% of people in prison are for drug-defined offences. We're not talking about drug-related offences. We're not saying whether well, they've done shoplifting or burglary. We're saying that they have been caught with cultivation, possession, supply, whatever. So it's a drug-defined offence over half the people in federal prison in the US, that is. And then if we look at uh, the racial uh, angle uh, in terms of being stopped and searched and arrested, uh, you can see that one in nine men overall in the US have a risk of, like, uh, of lifetime in, uh, incarceration. But it's one in three if you're black. It's one in 17 if you're white. Let's look a little bit more detail at that. This is from a, a different report. It uh, came out in 2009, looking at the rates of, uh, of drug arrests in particular uh, and comparing the two. And you see here the, the rates per 100,000 residents of black residents compared to white residents uh, for drug arrests. And, uh, and actually, the, the use of illicit drugs amongst the black population and the white population is very much the same in the U.S., so we cannot explain this, that, oh, the black people are more likely to use drugs or they use more drugs than the white population. There's no evidence to suggest that. But you can certainly look at this graph and say from 1980 right through to 2007, it's the black population who are being arrested proportionately uh, more than the, the white population. And if you look at particular states in 2006, you can see uh, the black arrests and the darker band there and the white arrests below them. And so you can see, for example, in Nebraska, uh, per 100,000 population, uh, 4,000, uh, sorry, four, is that 404? I'm not quite sure. I have to be, we have to take the, it, it seems shockingly high. I can't believe it's so high, but I think it is that high. I'm just not used to that sort of injustice, really. Uh, yeah, yeah, so it's 4,043 uh, in Nebraska black people per 100,000 compared to 558, 558 of the white population. So the, the disparity in terms of, because there's a great deal of discretion when it comes to drugs. Drugs is a wonderful offence for, for policing. It's so easy to pull people. It's so easy to find drugs. It's so easy to plant drugs as well, so small. 
Uh, and so where that discretion comes in, you often find there are uh, injustices. Here, just to give a quick snapshot of New Zealand, uh, not in the same league as, as the US when it comes to incarceration, but not in a good league either. And uh, Sorry, just to try to give you the full screen there. Uh, so you can see there that you've got the figures there for the, the previous three years uh, for the drug-defined offences, again, not looking at drug-related. And they actually, and, and at the bottom there, under total, you've got all recorded crime. So we're looking at 25,000, almost 24,500 people in New Zealand being done for drug-defined offences. And it actually amounts to 5.6% of all recorded crime. So it's a, it's, a, it's a very considerable amount of police time caught up in drug-defined offences. When you look at the incarceration rate in New Zealand, it's 11% of people incarcerated are there for drug-defined crimes. And often drug-defined crimes are often cannabis-related. So I want to argue that current uh, drug law and policy is rooted in 1950s and 60s thinking. It's based upon a social and, uh, social and cultural norm. And it's, uh, it, it's based upon social and cultural norms more than any supposed scientific evidence. And these are laws and policies written at a time largely by white middle-aged men reflecting their own self-interest. And let's just remind ourselves of the era of the 1950s and 60s when these white middle-aged men were writing laws. So what I want to suggest to you is that the things that we won't tolerate anymore quite rightly in the 1960s and the 50s we are still tolerating in respect of drugs. So clearly women were, and this was the scientific evidence of the weaker sex and the scientific evidence that women are not supposed and fit for doing certain jobs. And we've gone way past that so-called scientific evidence. It was the scientific evidence in the 60s that prevented black people because of their inferiority of race. Uh, that, that, that meant that they cannot use the same cafes and buses and whatever in, in the US. And the scientific evidence that, that led to the protest and the incarceration of Martin Luther King, who deserved his Nobel Peace Prize. And in this scientific evidence of devising the, uh, the drug laws, they, they protected their self-interest of drug laws, but not the drug, drugs that were used by the other uh, and the other being the opium users or the cannabis users. And here we have, during the same sort of era, smoking is believing. So, so you have this juxtaposition between substances and you can buy your cigarettes through the vending machine. Uh, there are vending machines growing in New Zealand recently for cannabis, uh, although they've been shut down. So current drug policy is not evidence-based, I would suggest. Uh, Professor Nutt, the, uh, the, the guy who was in charge of the ACMD, who got the sack by the government, uh, has done a piece recently in uh, 2010 uh, looking at the, the harms posed by drugs. And in this, he looked at the harms not just to the user, but also to others. And a group of experts who, who were very knowledgeable in the drugs field rated all the harms. So here's the answer to your, your third question, which is the most harmful drug? The most harmful drug from the experts uh, who, who, who systematically rated all the, the, the variables of harm to the individual as well as to wider society came to the conclusion through research that the most damaging drug is that drug called alcohol. And you can see further down there, you know, is it two, four, six is, is tobacco. So two of the legal drugs are in the top six. 
alcohol being the highest. So if you're looking for a scientific evidence-based, then this is one uh, suggestion that you can, you can go with. Uh, certainly it fits a lot better than the ABC that we have of the Misuse of Drugs Act. And interestingly, uh, the, the, the drugs which have been three of the four least harmful drugs in the criteria, three of them are Class A drugs, for which if you're caught supplying, you can be given life imprisonment maximum. So I, I think we, we have evidence here to suggest that our, our, our position is, is pretty untenable. I would, so, though, say to you that I'm not comfortable with the ABC classification, but I, neither am I comfortable with what I've just presented to you either in terms of a lead table. But I would say that the ABC classification that purports to portray harm in the Misuse of Drug Act is at best scientifically unreliable, and at worst it's seriously misleading uh, and the cause of considerable avoidable harm. But you see, the trouble with, uh, with the ABC and even with, with Professor Nutt's categorization is we focus too much on the substance, that yellow circle there. And I believe that the impact of a drug isn't just to do with the substance. I think the impact of a drug has got as much as, if not more, to do with the set, the person, their makeup, their abilities, their psychology, their state of mind, their... their, their ability to control themselves, whatever, as well as the setting, the environment, the culture, what they expect, where they're using. And it's, the impact of a drug is a combination of those three factors. And for me, those three factors will vary from person to person because set and setting are going to change. The substance might be the same, but the set and the setting will always change. So for, so for somebody over there taking alcohol, they might be fine, but for somebody over there taking alcohol, it might ruin their lives. So I'm not comfortable with a view of having a lead table to say, oh, actually, LSD, it's really well safe. I think for somebody, it could really wreck their, wreck their life. So I don't, I'm not comfortable with a lead table. This is my pre preferred uh, model, which is to suggest that we're all drug users. I'm a drug user, even though I've never taken an illicit drug. Uh, and you're a drug user too. And you probably take caffeine or alcohol uh, or, or tobacco maybe. And some of you might take illicit drugs as well. And, and we all take risks when we're taking drugs. And we take risks in all of life, whether it be sticking that mobile phone next to your head or living outside the, the mobile mast or whatever or, uh, or eating genetically modified foods. We're all taking risks. And in terms of substances, there is low risk and high risk of harm. But you can't easily categorize that according to a particular drug. So for one person, uh, person cannabis user A, really no problem at all. But cannabis user B, it's, it's a higher risk. So that would be my suggestion. But I think the notion of, of league tables is what we've got, so it's, uh, it's what we live with. In 1998, I was rabbiting on about this stuff, saying that the myth is, is that it's possible to win the war on drugs. And it gives the illusion that we can eradicate uh, illegal drug use from our society if only we're willing to try harder but the evidence indicates uh, that the opposite is the conclusion. The more you prohibit drugs and push them underground, the more lucrative the business will become and uh, the, the environment. So it's difficult to understand how waging war on drugs can continue to be justified uh, through quite possibly, uh, although quite possibly the alternatives may be politically too challenging for the government. Uh, to consider. And sooner or later, and I wrote this 
at the beginning of the 90, in criticism of the 10-year drug strategy in 1998, that sooner or later an influential Western nation will have to lead the way with a radical rethink of international and national drug policy. I don't think any influential Western nation has done that, but a Western nation has done that. Any ideas of a Western nation who's given us a glimpse of maybe Portugal? Yeah, they, and I'll look at them a little bit later. Portugal have given us an option for something a little different. So that was back in 1998, so there is lots of evidence. It's not that we ain't got the evidence. Uh, Dame Runciman, uh, she gave a report in 1999-2000, uh, known as the Runciman Report by the Police Commission. And she said that the present classification of the misuse of drugs needs to be reviewed, and it needs to take into account medical scientific knowledge, maybe for the first time, and uh, sociological knowledge. And, and, and that report suggested that ecstasy should be moved to B, acid to B, and cannabis should remain a C, should be moved to a C in every form. And the and Runciman report also wanted to remove uh, any custodial penalties for Class B and Class C possession. Excuse me. And then a very aptly named report uh, from the House of Commons. And if you've seen this one, drug classification making a hash of it. And that concluded that the current classification system, which we currently live by in 2012, uh, is not fit for purpose, and it should be replaced with a scientifically based scale of harm and decoupled from penalties for possession and, and trafficking. So current drug policy uh, doesn't reduce and doesn't uh, reduce drug use or drug production. Uh, more recently, uh, coming into 2011 now, uh, Richard Branson delivered the Global Commission report and uh, that found and gave the evidence that for all this prohibition, so, so if one of the arguments for prohibition is we've got to stop people using drugs. Well, more people, there's more drug use uh, in 2008 in, in that 10-year period. You see the opiate use consumption has gone up by 34%. So there's dr increasing drug use. So prohibition doesn't work. Uh, the global war on drugs has failed. It's got devastating consequences for individuals and societies. And the fundamental reforms, national and global drug control, are urgently needed. And the British Medical Journal, more recently again, in 2012, in April, they were arguing that, uh, and they were quoting the UNODC who were saying, we've concentrated for too long on tackling drug supply. We need to look at prevention, treatment, reintegration and health. And we need to start having a proper conversation as opposed to polarising people into liberal legalisers of drugs. And just quickly to give you some more information from other countries, news, uh, Australia here first of all, this rather informal-looking report looks a bit casual or whatever. It's not. It's a very serious report with some uh, major players in it who've been working in the field for a long time. Often what you find is you get the players willing to speak when they've left their jobs and they've retired, which is a great shame, really. It's like a disease that goes around. Everyone who's been in the drug field uh, trying to wage war on drugs is happy to talk about how silly it is once they've left their job. And there's a few of those characters in, in the authors of this report. But this is saying that prohibition of illicit drugs is killing and criminalising our children and we're letting it happen. And uh, so, so the momentum is growing and they, they said in that report it's time to stop, time to stop sloganeering and insist to all of our political representatives 
and to all of our media that Australia must have an informed national debate about the alternatives to a policy that has failed disastrously and is criminalising our young people. And then in New Zealand, we have the Law Commission report that came out, uh, and I did say we then, so maybe I'm becoming a Kiwi, that we, we had come out in 2011, and that has got a, a whole raft, very comprehensive, lots of really good ideas, but the big crunch is, is I mean, the Runciman report had lots of very good ideas, and that was... Uh, 11, 12 years ago. It's all very well for making a hash of it and all these other reports have lots of good ideas. We need governments to actually implement them. So this was saying we need to uh, differentiate and we need to have a flexible approach to small-scale dealing for personal possession. It's saying that we need to differentiate between social dealing and commercial dealing. And it's a, a key one was it says that we should have mandatory cautioning for possession. So for any possession of drugs... Uh, you should be able to be cautioned three times. The governments have said they're not going to embrace that one. And they wanted to remove uh, minor drug offences from the criminal justice system and give greater access and opportunity for treatment. They also have in New Zealand, uh, you have ABC. They've, almost, they've effectively got a D category, uh, which allows you to have a temporary rating, which would be a good idea. They did have the opportunity with BZP, but they didn't exercise this this D rating, so, so whether it's there, but whether they'll use it is another thing. So quickly to, to spend the last sort of uh, section of my, my talk is to quickly go over what can we learn and how can we do things differently, having established that we're making a, a right hash of it and we're doing more harm than good. We're not reducing drug use, we're not reducing drug supply, and we are damaging people uh, on many different levels through incarceration, through discrimination, and through making drug use much more dangerous. Let's look at a few alternatives. Well, we could look at shifting classification. And uh, in the UK, uh, there was a, a, a desire and a commitment from the government in 2001, based upon the Runciman report and based upon the ACMD advice, to move cannabis, in, and they, have, they agreed to do this in 2001, so cannabis was going to become class B to class C. And all the tabloid media were saying cannabis is basically decriminalised. So there was plenty of media hype to tell young people to go and get your cannabis because you won't get a criminal record. And uh, cannabis is a good move because cannabis takes up about three quarters of all police possession arrests and whatever, so that, that would free up a fair bit of police time if they, if they could process it fairly quickly. But they didn't end up implementing it until 2004 because they wanted to beef up supply of Class C, and that was the question at the beginning. Because supply of Class C used to be five years, but when cannabis was going to be moved downstairs from B to C, in order to pacify the, the war on drugs people, they upped the supply from five years to 14 years. So that, that happened in 2004. So, and what they did in 2009 with the backlash, with all this new evidence of, of uh, schizophrenia and cannabis and, and, and ultra-powerful toxic uh, cannabis, they moved it back from C to B in 2009 did a U-turn. So it showed that their inability to, to, to enact scientific evidence but to uh, respond to, to populist propaganda. 
Now, what I want to show you here is what happens when you publicise a drug that becomes almost decriminalised to young people, and it moved, this is cannabis use in the UK, and you see the blue highlighted area just to concentrate on, and maybe you just want to cast your mind, uh, your focus upon the 16 to 24 year olds, and what you'll see is past month use and past year use, and you can see from the previous periods, the, there was not any increase in cannabis use when it moved from a B to C. So, uh, so, so this, this, this is from the British Crime Survey in terms of, uh, of people's personal use uh, of, of drugs. So you can see it did not increase during that time. It actually decreased. So, move, so fiddling with the ABC doesn't appear to affect anything. Now, we can also learn from Switzerland. In Switzerland, uh, they had what they call Needle Park. They tried to create a ghetto. I mean, I suppose it is like a form of apartheid. They gave, the, they gave all the junkies, as they, they would call them, uh, a, a park in Zurich and said, do what you like in that park. And it became a scene where three or four hundred people lived there who were, who were the most severe problematic drug users. And in the daytime, they were joined with three or four thousand other problematic drug users. It was a grotesque mess. And there were no facilities. It was like, that is your apartheid area. That is your ghetto. Get on with it and do what you like. And it, it turned out to be a grave mistake that the Swiss the Swiss population deeply regretted, and this is what it looked like day after day. Uh, just a whole ring-fence group of people with needles and syringes and no, no medical facilities, no testing, no access to clean needles, although some volunteers did uh, do it without uh, authority. Uh, and it was a, a, a right mess. The Swiss became very embarrassed about it, and the Swiss, having done that in 1990, in 2001, the, the Swiss then set about uh, giving drug users clean heroin. So they didn't give them methadone, they gave heroin users heroin. And they gave them uh, injectable heroin, and they gave them clean needles, and they gave them a room like this, and they came through the door, uh, they presented themselves, and, it's, and this went on from Zurich. So from that path, they came to a room like this with nurses, with, with needles, with clean heroin, and, the, and they found that that reduced HIV, it reduced Hep C, it reduced Hep B, it, people started to recover and people started to get into employment. And when they gave heroin to people in Switzerland, actually heroin use went down during that period. So what, what's interesting here is, well, you know, I can't imagine that the public would ever support something like that. You can't give heroin users heroin, that's a crazy idea. Well, after, after pilot scheme after pilot scheme in Zurich and, and renewing and renewing and researching and researching and talking to the public, there was a referendum held, and this is, a, what was this, 2008. So in 2008, the people of Zurich had a, a national referendum and 68% of the people in Zurich voted not only to carry it on in Zurich, uh, across the whole country, this is, they voted. They said, not just in Zurich, let's have this across the whole of Switzerland. And this still goes on today. So the whole of Switzerland, if you've got a heroin problem, you can get yourself clean heroin. And you get yourself clean needles. And people find that they are much more treated with respect and dignity as, as fellow human beings. So I've put here that they move from ghettoization to integration. 
uh, and that's proved to be a big success, not with a minority of specialist interested people who keep their head down and do stuff, but with the whole population who voted 68% in favour. And then Holland you'll be familiar with. Well, in Holland in 1976, they effectively decriminalised cannabis. And in Holland, you can go and get yourself cannabis uh, in any coffee shop since 1976. But... Uh, Interestingly, what's happened under pressure from the war on drugs and prohibition, Holland have recently changed and they've said now we're going to only do this for the people who live in Holland. And there's an interesting piece really because the people of Belgium who live very near to Holland who often go across to smoke cannabis in the coffee shops are a bit miffed because they can't go and smoke they can't go and smoke uh, the, the cannabis anymore. So they've actually imposed a ban on the Dutch going over the border to the pubs and said the Dutch can't have alcohol in our pubs. So, uh, so I think that's a, a nice move, really. You know, if, you ca- if you can do cannabis in your coffee shops and we can't, then you can't do alcohol. Uh, but then, in a way, you know, maybe they're saving the Dutch because if that's the really nasty drug that we've seen before. It's the most dangerous drug. I don't think they're actually imposing it. I think it's more a bit of a jest, really. But it's an interesting jest. So, so you can get uh, cannabis in, in Holland. And maybe, so my question is, well, if you've got a country where you can liberally get cannabis, and this has been going on since 1976, and you've got a country like the US, where there's very strong prohibition to stop people and warn people about these risks, then surely, surely, there's got to be a bigger cannabis problem in Holland. And surely, there's got to be a bigger group proportionately of problematic drug users in Holland because they're putting it in your face. And if they're putting it in your face, then that surely is going to be a problem in uh, in Holland. Well, there's a piece of research here uh, done, published in 2004 in the American Journal of Public Health. And they made a comparison between San Francisco and Amsterdam. And they looked at a group of users. And they found that the mean, the mean age for starting to use cannabis was actually... Uh, was actually very, very similar. It's actually older in, in, in Amsterdam than, than San Francisco. So although it's readily available in, in Holland, in Amsterdam particularly, uh, they're using it at a younger age in San Francisco where it's prohibited. And that the mean age at which they began using more regularly uh, was actually older in Amsterdam than San Francisco, but very, very similar. I think the most interesting thing, not as whether it's older or younger, but whether it's similar, given the very different contexts where one is so freely available. So proponents of criminalisation you know, tend to attribute their pre- preferred drug control regime, the war on drugs, a special power to affect user behaviour. But I'm suggesting to you, looking at the evidence here, Uh, from the classification changes, looking at the evidence for making heroin available in Switzerland, looking at the evidence for making uh, marijuana available in in Amsterdam, that actually this prohibition and the law doesn't actually affect drug use. So it casts doubt on, on such attributions. 
So despite, this is, this is a quote from the, the article there, despite widespread lawful availability of cannabis in Amsterdam, there was no difference between the two cities in terms of the age of onset of use, the age of first regular use, or the age of start of maximum use. So either the availability in San Francisco is either equivalent to that in Amsterdam, despite policy differences, or availability per se does not strongly influence onset or other career phases. And this is, a, we're looking in that research from that article about drug use. And we're seeing there's not a lot of difference. And it's, it's a point that you, that you need to think about for yourself. But I'm not particularly worried about drug use. I wouldn't want to necessarily embark on trying to eradicate or reduce drug use. I am particularly concerned to deal and, and diminish or reduce problematic use or misuse or harms from drugs to the individual or to other people. So I'm going to go for a drink later. I'm not worried about having a drink. So, so use isn't an issue for me of alcohol, but misuse is an issue for me. So I'm not out to eradicate alcohol use, but I do want to protect people from misuse. And in this country, Holland, where they, where they almost invite people to use cannabis through their policy, what you see here is a chart from the EMCDDA report, and it charts the proportion of problematic drug users. And you can see that, that in Holland they have the lowest proportion, or they did when this survey was done, the lowest proportion of problematic drug users than the other uh, EU member states. And you see Portugal was quite high as well. I've highlighted them. And this was uh, Portugal's figure there is in 2000, the year before Portugal actually uh, set about decriminalising possession of all drugs. And we'll look at them in, in a moment to finish. But it's interesting that people use and have access to, to cannabis, but they don't necessarily seem to have or go on to develop a drug problem. So it really certainly challenges the so-called gateway theory. Now, Portugal, I'm not, I don't know if you're familiar. I mean, some, a lot of you who know about drugs will be familiar. But Portugal haven't, have done what Holland have done to a degree. Uh, I mean, they've decriminalised uh, not just cannabis. In Portugal, you can, you can, if you want to, you can chase heroin on the streets. If you want to, you can smoke crack cocaine. It is not a criminal offence. You will not get a criminal record for, for possession and use of illicit drugs. All illicit drugs for 10 years now in Portugal have been decriminalised. If you are perceived to be somebody who's got a drug problem, you may well be uh, guided towards a treatment advisor and have to undergo some sort of uh, therapeutic counselling, but you will not get a criminal record. So, so, what, so given that the Portugal did that 10 years ago in the face of a major drug problem, what's happened? Well, Portugal is the only... Sorry, this is an article from Alex Stevens and Caitlin Hughes that was published in the British Journal of Criminology in 2010. And uh, just to, there's lots of quotes, but I'll just quickly whiz through. That's, uh, so I'll leave a pile out. That compared to other nations nearby, 
Portugal is the only nation to have exhibited a decline in problematic drug use, which suggests strong evidence that Portuguese decriminalisation has not increased the most harmful forms of drug use. So although, although Portugal have taken this liberal stand, problematic drug use actually hasn't gone through the roof. But in, interestingly, compared to the nearby countries, it actually seems to have, have decreased a little compared to them. And contrary to some predictions, decriminalisation has not inevitably led to a, a significant rise in drug use. And what it has done is it's reduced the burden on the criminal justice system and it has contributed to social and health benefits. So there's no sign in Portugal of a mass expansion because some people have a, a belief that within us all we have this thing and we're all going to become addicts if only they're all laid out on the table. Once they're all laid out on the table, then actually, you know, probably 60% of the population will become addicts. And I, I'm, I don't subscribe to that sense of determinism. I think there's probably a section of society who will, who will become addicted, but I don't think, I don't think that section is an, infinitely, uh, is an infinite market that's there to be tapped if only drugs become uh, legally available or, or liberally available. So there's been no sign of mass expansion uh, of drug use in, in Portugal. So just to summarise on Portugal, what, what they found is that there have been small increases in reported use amongst some adults. But there's been a, a reduction in problematic drug use there's also been a reduction in adolescent illicit drug use since 2003. There's been a reduced burden of drug offenders on the criminal justice system, so the police are able to do more with their time. There's been an increased uptake of drug treatment, so more people are getting help with drugs. There's been a reduction in opiate-related deaths. There's been a reduction in infectious diseases. Now, I can say, oh, Portugal's really good, and that seems to be very useful. But I wish they did what Switzerland are doing and give people access to clean drugs because unclean drugs are a mess. And if you're jacking up with unclean drugs, it don't do you any good. Uh, so, so it's good, but it's not the, the, the full answer, I don't think. But it's a, it's a great start forward. And then Alex and, and Caitlin make a good point which is that it doesn't give a definitive guide and we, we do need to be careful because we, we don't know exactly what the implications would be for other countries. We know what's happened in Portugal. And the EMCDDA, an authoritative body across Europe on drugs, uh, did a review and, and a study on uh, Portugal and they said it's developed a policy that appears to be internally consistent and tries to respond to drug problems in a pragmatic and innovative way. And uh, this isn't always the case in drug policy. And I'll just uh, quickly finish by looking more closely at what we can learn from all this. So what can we do? So just to give you a quick run-through of, of a pile of uh, snappy ideas that we can do, we can recognise the untold damage caused by prohibition drug strategy. We can recognise that the war on drugs has become a civil war, fueling stigma, prejudice and discrimination upon people who choose the wrong drugs. We can remove the inconsistencies and the hypocrisy that misleads people uh, around legal and illegal drugs. 
We can decriminalise possession of all drugs. We can repeal the outdated Misuse of Drugs Act of 71, which is so, so out of date. We can encourage a rational, informed, mature and sensible debate, and we can continue that in a few minutes. We can have a law and a policy on drugs that is evidence-based and is based upon science. We can tackle the underlying causes of, of problematic drug use. Whenever I've worked with people who've got drug problems, they are, they are disproportionately overrepresented from people from very damaged backgrounds, from people who've been in care, from people who, who've uh, been abused, from people who've been in prison, from people... Uh, who've had learning difficulties, from people who've been discarded and, and found it difficult to, to find uh, a place in education and, and work or whatever, and often got problems before they began taking drugs. So we can, we can look at ways to help those people and look at the underlying causes of problematic drug use. We can provoke, promote voluntary treatment rather than enforced treatment. We can accept, manage and regulate, so we can regulate all substances. We can provide a full range of low-threshold user-friendly services, including drug consumption rooms, which I haven't had time to talk about, and including a full range of prescribing. We can ensure that we have a wide range of needle exchanges inside the prison and outside the prison, and we can ensure that we have naloxone available through chemists, which I haven't had time to talk about either. So that's a closer look uh, at a drug-free world. We can do it. I think it's a, a damaging uh, and a distorted perspective to try to pursue a drug-free world. We very much need drugs for our health and our well-being, certainly medically, and people would argue we need them uh, recreationally. And uh, just to finish, we need to redefine drugs. We need to accept that we are all drug users. We need to learn to live with drugs rather than against drugs. And we need to keep drugs outside of the criminal justice system, deal with them socially and, and from a health perspective. I'd be happy to share all this uh, presentation with you and any further info as well if you want to email me. I've got a few cards if you want them. But thanks for your time. Thanks for listening. This is a recording from the University of Leicester. For more information, please visit le.ac.uk.